0: Chapter 6 of the Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. Chapter 6. William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. Part 1 if you had dropped in at one of lamb's wednesday evenings in the temple at about ten o'clock p m you would most probably have seen at the whist table a somewhat remarkable-looking man with a massive head altogether out of proportion to the insignificant body which supported it with placid benignant features and with a particularly gracious suavity of manner had you requested to be introduced to him you would have found him a man of few words and though plainly a philosopher by no means disposed to talk of serious subjects you would have been struck by the delicacy and precision of expression bordering you would have felt on the finical with which in the lowest of voices he delivered what he had to say to you Could you have drawn him out of his shell, you would very soon have discovered that you were in communication with no common intellect, but with an intellect of steel and steel of the ice-hook's temper, as hard and cold as it was keen and poignant, that neither passion nor sentiment, neither imagination nor fancy, no touch of humour, no suspicion of wit, had part in your strange companion's composition had you been a young gentleman of fortune it is more than probable that your new friend would have solicited the honour of further acquaintance with you and would have taken an early opportunity of communicating that he was in great straits for money and that any loan from five pounds to five hundred would just then be particularly acceptable and you would have noticed that he requested this rather as a right than as a favour whatever you might have thought of him the one thing which you would have found it difficult to realize in relation to your composed and stage companion was that he was the high priest of anarchy and the author of a work at the potential effects which the maddest incendiary in europe would have been appalled godwin presents the extraordinary anomaly not of a philosopher among fanatics for that is not uncommon but of a fanatic among philosophers reason seems to have had the same effect on him as mere enthusiasm has on other men what sobers most men intoxicated him what quenches them gave him fire at the point to which others are rapt by transporting excitement he arrived by a cold process of mathematical calculation the sensation which Burke's reflections made among politicians was scarcely greater than the sensation which the political justice made in inquiring, philosophical-political circles. No work in our time, says Hazlitt, gave such a blow to the philosophical mind of this country. Tom Paine was considered for a time as Tom Fool to Godwin, Cayley, an old woman, Edmund Burke a flashy sophist truth moral truth had here taken up its abode and these were the oracles of thought it carried said de quincey one single shock into the bosom of english society fearful but momentary like that from the electric blow of the gymnotus but it did not meet with the approval of many friends of the revolution horn took pronounced it to be a bad book which would do a great deal of harm. And even Holcroft said that though it was written with very good intentions, yet, to be sure, nothing would be so foolish. The poet Crabbe's remark about it was characteristic and hit it off in quiet humour. I have never felt before, nor, I am afraid, have I ever felt since, so strongly the duty of not living to oneself, but of having for one sole object the good of the community but to turn to its author born march third seventeen fifty six at wisbeach in cambridgeshire his father being a dissenting minister at that place he was brought up by an aunt who was a rigid calvinist and who dinned into him the religious views of that sect he passed next into the tuition of one samuel newton a minister of the independent congregation at norwich whose creed derived from the writings of sandeman had supplemented that of calvin for calvin's creed having damned ninety-nine in a hundred who were not calvinists this creed damned it ninety-nine in a hundred who were calvinists he had thus at the opening of life laid an excellent foundation for that reaction which in his thirty-first year made him an unbeliever and in his thirty-sixth an atheist in 1773 he entered the dissenting college at hoxton where he spent five years reading among other things all the authors for and against the trinity original sin and the most disputed doctrines but finding his understanding not sufficiently instructed for impartial decision all his inquiries terminated in calvinism he had also he says adopted the principles of toryism with regard to politics In seventeen seventy eight, he settled as a dissenting minister at Ware in Hertfordshire. But now a great change was about to come over him, for he was brought into contact with the first of the four instructors to whom he tells us he felt his mind first indebted for improvement, namely Joseph Fawcett, Thomas Holcroft, George Dyson, and T. S. Coleridge. whose name is now forgotten delivered the sunday evening lectures at the old Jewry. he had according to hazlitt a singularly pure and noble character and hazlitt adds he was one of the most enthusiastic admirers of the french revolution and i believe that the disappointment of the hopes he had cherished of the freedom and happiness of mankind preyed upon his mind and hastened his death thomas holcroft whom godwin first met in seventeen eighty six and with whom two years afterwards he became on terms of brotherly intimacy was a very remarkable man the son of a shoemaker he had been successively stable-boy shoemaker actor dramatist and novelist stern irascible and perfervid he carried revolutionary notions to excess Rectitude and courage were, said Mrs. Shelley, the gods of his idolatry. He would contend that death and disease existed only through the feebleness of man's mind. And, happy man, that pain had no reality. In 1785, Godwin came up to London, dropped the title reverend, betook himself to journalism and miscellaneous literature, and threw himself into the life of the time then came the great event that found him an unbeliever rapidly developing into an atheist they are his own terms in religion and a republican in politics in his diary seventeen eighty-nine, he writes this was a year of the french revolution my heart beat high with great swelling sentiments of liberty I had been for nine years in principles a republican. I had read with great satisfaction the writings of Rousseau, Helvetius, and others, the most popular authors in France. I observed in them a system more general and simply philosophical than in the majority of English writers on political subjects, and I could not refrain from conceiving sanguine hopes of a revolution of which such writings had been the precursors. Yet I was far from approving all that I saw, even in the commencement of the revolution. I never for a moment ceased to disapprove of mob government, and the impulses which men, collected together in multitudes, produce on each other. I desired such political changes only as should flow purely from the clear light of the understanding, and the erect and generous feelings of the heart. Footnote See Keegan, Paul's William Godwin, and footnote. This puts comprehensively Godwin's attitude to the revolution. In 1793, appeared Political Justice, which, if written in the interests of democracy, was certainly published at a very aristocratic price—three guineas. This is said to have been the reason that proceedings were not taken against it by the government pitt observing to the privy council that a three guinea book could never do much harm among those who had not three shillings to spare mrs shelley tells us however that the high price her father placed on the work was in strict conformity with his principles he was an advocate for improvements brought in by the enlightened and sober-minded but he deprecated abrupt innovations and appeals to the passion of the multitude political justice was succeeded by caleb williams published in seventeen ninety four designed to illustrate dramatically the doctrines inculcated in the former work by a general review of the modes of domestic and unrecorded despotism by which man becomes the destroyer of man the hero being the victim of autocratic power and of mal-administered and tyrannical laws As our business is with Godwin in direct relation to the French Revolution, it is not necessary to deal with his many other literary and historical works produced between 1794 and 1834, or to enter into further details about his private life beyond the period of his connection with Shelley. In January 1796, he met Mary Wollstonecraft, footnote apparently not for the first time he had previously met her in seventeen ninety one and footnote born in seventeen fifty nine this remarkable woman had illustrated in her own adventures the results of the application of ideal laws to human life and society as at present constituted thrown on her own resources at eighteen years of age she had been companion to a lady at bath and had then set up a school at newington green where she became intimately acquainted with dr richard price failing there she then became governess in a private family in ireland and had at last in seventeen eighty eight settled down to a literary life in london here she worked like a slave battling very heroically both with poverty and ill-health. Gradually she had found friends, and among them Fuseli and his wife. Here she was brought into contact with the reformers, as they called themselves, among them Tom Paine. When Burke's reflections had set London on fire and answers to it, and apologies for it, were pouring from every press, among the voices hers was one and it found expression in a letter to burke a running shriek of a painfully hysterical ring against burke's arguments on a very different order was the next work the vindication of the rights of women but to that i shall recur in the heated atmosphere in which she lived she began now to lose her head and not long afterwards her heart for she fell frantically in love with fusilli mrs fuseli not unnaturally perhaps objecting so in seventeen ninety two this hyena in petticoats this philosophizing serpent for such i grieve to say were the terms in which horace walpole spoke of her went off to paris which she found in all the throes of the crisis preceding the execution of the king whose passage to the guillotine she witnessed Here she met Gilbert Inley, fell frantically in love with him, and became his wife in the eyes of heaven, as one of her friends piously observed, but unhappily not in the eyes of the world. Inley, who appears to have been a selfish and good-for-nothing fellow, not long afterwards deserted her, so back she came to England with her child, a girl who was twenty-two years afterwards to die by her own hand maddened by imlay's treatment mary threw herself into the thames from putney bridge but was rescued gradually she became calmer and resumed her literary work imlay was gradually forgotten and godwin slowly took his place in mary's affections neither of them had believed in marriage and though mary had he had not the courage to defy the world so after living together for seven months they condescended to stoop to the marriage ceremony. Less than a year after, Mary died, leaving the daughter, who links the name of Godwin, with that of Shelley. Not long afterwards, Godwin married again. Let us see how. Next door to him, in the polygon near Camden Towers, where he then had a house, a Mrs. Claremont with a son and daughter came to live this lady fell in love with her illustrious neighbour but did not know how to approach him as his life was a very secluded one and he was not a very accessible man even though a neighbour but she found that it was his habit to sit out on the balcony upon that she took to sitting out on her balcony which adjoined his where she would gaze at him but the absorbed philosopher gazed not back at last she took courage and spoke is it possible that i behold the immortal godwin it was so as we know and before the year was out the immortal godwin was her own and quite legally for this terrible woman would not trifle with the law this second mrs godwin mismanaged his affairs involved him in ruinous speculations quarrelled with her own children with his children with him and with his friends had a strident voice, we are told, in incessant activity, wore green spectacles, and was altogether, said Charles Lamb in summary, a very disgusting woman. However, Godwin was a philosopher, and they managed to rub on together. And now came the most important event in Godwin's life. On January 3, 1812, Godwin received a letter it informed him that the writer had been accustomed to consider him a luminary too dazzling for the darkness that surrounded him, that he had ardently desired to share on the footing of intimacy that intellect which he had delighted to contemplate in its emanations, but that he had long regarded him as a name enrolled in the list of the honorable dead, and had felt regret that the glory of his being had passed from this world of ours considering then these feelings it said you will not be surprised at the inconceivable emotions with which i learned your existence and your dwelling i have but just entered on the scene of human operations yet my feelings and my reasonings correspond with what yours were and it concludes by imploring him to employ humanly half an hour in letting the writer know whether any hope could be held out to him of a personal interview. The writer of this letter was Percy Bysshe Shelley. Shelley was then in his twentieth year. He had as yet produced nothing which has contributed to his fame, but was then engaged on the retrospect, and was about to begin Queen Mab. Between January and October he continued to correspond with his idol, and at the beginning of october the master and pupil met all that bolenbroke had been to pope godwin now became to shelley the philosophy of godwin indeed stands in precisely the same relation to the poetry of shelley as the philosophical writings of bolenbroke stand to the essay on man and as the writings of democritus and epicurus stood to the poem of lucretius a great part of queen mab is little more than a versification of political justice the revolt of islam is penetrated with the same influence so is the prometheus unbound it inspires the fragment of charles i it suffuses the ode to liberty it was the mainspring of all his social and political philosophy one of his prose essays the fragment of a system of government by juries is the commencement of a commentary on godwin's theory of the application of a juridical system to government another the fragment of the essay on christianity was evidently designed to show that the chief value of christian doctrines is that they anticipated many of the teachings of godwin godwin was highly gratified by the homage paid to him and to his teachings by his fervid disciple but when that homage took the form of a practical application of those teachings he forgot his philosophy and became as angry as the most unphilosophic and commonplace person might be it was not quite clear when shelley first met mary godwin but it is certain that, on June eighth eighteen fourteen, a thrilling voice was calling Shelley, and a thrilling voice was answering, "Mary," and that these were the thrilling voices of two who had to employ Professor Dowden's phrase become inexpressibly dear to one another. Footnote life of Shelley and footnote i need hardly remind you that at this time shelley was the husband of a young wife with two children but as he had learned and nowhere so emphatically as from his master that the marriage tie is mere degradation when love has ceased as his for his wife had done he had as little scruple about dissolving the old tie as he had about forming a new one accordingly by the end of july mary and shelley were on their way to the continent godwin's rage knew no bounds he pronounced shelley's offense against virtue to be beyond forgiveness and when two months afterwards the fugitives returned he refused to have any intercourse with his two faithful disciple except through an attorney but it must not be supposed that this intercourse through an attorney with the offender against virtue had any reference to the offense. It was simply because Shelley was assisting the philosopher with money lenders and backing bills for him, and the philosopher fully appreciated the little services of this kind, which the prospective heir to a baronetcy and some eighty thousand pounds was able to do for him well might poor mary when commenting in her journal on her father's conduct break into the exclamation "Oh, philosophy and oh, philosophy indeed it was and the results of philosophy were not to end here another inmate of godwin's household a young girl a daughter of mrs godwin by her first marriage had also like her half-sister drunk deep from the fountains of the political justice meeting byron byron had no difficulty in persuading her to follow in her half-sister's footsteps though he did not think it necessary to persuade her to defy the world and a miserable surreptitious intrigue was the result till her shame could no longer be concealed in september eighteen sixteen fanny imlay mary woolstonecraft's natural daughter hopelessly in love with shelley Distracted by the miseries of her wretched home, in which the straits of poverty were aggravated by the strident turbulence of that very disgusting woman in green spectacles, terminated her troubles by poison herself at Swansea, a month after Harriet Shelley drowned herself in the serpentine. Early in the following year, Godwin's principles came into collision with the law and were submitted to the practical test of sanity and sound sense. Lord Eldon, in stating his reasons for deciding that Shelley's children were not to remain in the exclusive custody of their father, but were to be placed under the protection of the court, thus expressed himself this is a case in which as the matter appears to me the father's principles cannot be misunderstood in which his conduct which i cannot but consider as highly immoral has been established in proof and established as the effect of these principles conduct nevertheless which he represents to himself and others not as conduct to be considered immoral but to be recommended and observed in practice and as worthy of approbation i consider this therefore as a case in which a father has demonstrated that he must and does not deem it to be a matter of duty which his principles oppose upon him to recommend to those whose opinions and habits he may take it upon himself to form that conduct in some of the most important relations of life as moral and virtuous which the law calls upon me to consider as immoral and vicious conduct which the law animadverts upon as inconsistent with the duties of persons in such relations of life and which it considers as injuriously affecting both the interests of such persons and those of the community godwin soon became reconciled with shelley and mary in december eighteen sixteen little more than a fortnight after the inquest had been held on harriet they were duly married and the philosopher was highly pleased and this reconciliation was the more acceptable to him as a year before shelley had come to terms with his father who had consented to pay his debts and to allow him a thousand a year as it was one of the fundamental principles of godwin's philosophy that he who has should give to him who has not and that there should be community of goods between those who were capable of profiting from them and as the disciple had already proved himself so loyal he naturally thought that things would begin to look up in skinner street but unfortunately godwin had many rivals peacock wanted a hundred a year Le Hunt wanted all he could get. Charles Claremont had formed a scheme to live a words worthy in life among the Pyrenees, plus, I regret to say, a Miss Jean Morel. And do I dream, my dear Shelley? Writes this youth, when a gleam of gay hope gives me reason to doubt of the impossibility of my scheme? but loud above all these voices which were after all pleading soft and low for luxuries rose the piercing cry and it was always rising from skinner street five hundred pounds a struggle sometimes almost beyond human strength once every three months he wrote to shelley do i throw myself beneath the feet of taylor of norwich and my other discounting friends protesting that this is absolutely for the last time shall this ever have an end footnote dowden's life of shelley end of chapter six